I am here with Emma Hughes, who's a writer and editor for Red Pepper magazine and website, um, and you're also an environmental justice campaigner for the oil-related NGO platform, which That's correct, yeah. art, activism, and research. And you have just published a book called All That Glitters, Sport, BP, and Repression in Azerbaijan. That's correct. So, um, yeah, my first question for you is, um, can you explain to me what the hell the Euro Games are, why I've never heard of them, and where they're being held? So you've never heard of them before because they're the first ever European Games. Um, the Olympics um, have tried to create sort of subsidiaries of the, the International Olympics um, for many years, but they were never able to create European Games, mainly because most countries didn't want all the expense and effort of organizing Olympics without the kind of prestige of the Summer Olympics. Um, However, at the moment, the European Games, the first ever European Games, are happening in Baku, the capital of Azerbaijan, um, which is a country which is positioned between Georgia, Iran, and Russia on the Caspian Sea. Uh, Azerbaijan were the only bidders for the European Games, um, and it's a very repressive uh, situation in Azerbaijan. There's a dictatorship there, and it seems clear that, that the regime in power there wanted the Games uh, basically to sort of the world to the repression that's going on in Azerbaijan and to present themselves as an exciting, uh, dynamic country, which is why they decided to host it when uh, no other European country would. Interesting. Um, did you watch the opening ceremony of the European Games? I did watch the opening ceremony. Unfortunately, I had to watch it on uh, television rather than in person. I was hoping to be at the opening ceremony of the Games. But um, I was barred from the country um, because I've spoken out about the human rights abuses there. Um, I was barred along with other journalists uh, and human rights activists. So Amnesty International were barred, uh, as were the Guardian newspaper. So what was it that, what, what was the justification for barring you? What had you been saying about the Azerbaijani regime? So the justification they gave me is that I was on a red list, but they didn't give me any other details apart from that. But what I've been talking about for several years um, is the numbers of political prisoners in the lack of freedom of expression in the country, and also looking at the role of the British oil company, BP, in both funding and supporting the regime. Mm, yeah, you write in, in your book about um, the... A thing called the contract of the century between Azerbaijan and BP. Can you can you describe what this contract was and, and what it means for Azerbaijan and what it means for BP, I guess, as well? Sure. So the contract of the was signed 21 years ago in 1994, and it was a contract between the Aliyev regime in Azerbaijan and 11 international oil companies to extract oil from the largest oil field in Azerbaijan. BP were the lead company, um, both in terms of setting up that deal, but also they're the operating um, company on the oil field. That contract was signed a year after Haydar Aliyev seized power in Azerbaijan uh, after a 10-day coup. And the contract came at an absolutely crucial time when the regime were very weak and could have easily lost power. Since that time, BP and the Aliyev regime have been working closer and closer together uh, to build more oil pipelines, to uh, develop gas fields as well as oil fields. And in that process, uh, the regime 
have not only uh, earned vast amounts of uh, oil revenues, uh, which has been pumped straight into the bank accounts of the first family, rather than being spent uh, on the people of Azerbaijan, but they've also gained real geopolitical strength, thanks uh, in big part to the lobbying and activities of BP. <clears throat> and uh, a lot of that money has obviously gone into creating this spectacle of the Euro Games that you're talking about, um, that, that you've been talking about. What um, <clears throat> what's the the situation of uh, working class people within Azerbaijan, and uh, what kind of what kind of labour rights situation exists there most people? Yeah, so there's huge wealth inequality in Azerbaijan, and as you say, large amounts have been spent on these games. The official estimate is uh, 1.2 billion dollars, uh, but in actual fact, it seems like the amount is going to be much higher than that. The national stadium alone costs 700 million, and there are 13 new venues being built. For ordinary people in Azerbaijan, this couldn't come at a worse time because of the crashing oil price. The currency in Azerbaijan, the manat, has been devalued by a third. So people have lost vast amounts of their savings and also food prices are rising. Um, for most people in Azerbaijan, housing is very, very basic. Um, kind of key infrastructure like drainage systems, etc., often don't work. Um, and key social provision like healthcare um, is not great. Most people have to pay for their own healthcare. Um, standards of education have been rapidly falling since Soviet times and very little money is spent on education. Um, people who want their children to have a very good education have to spend for their children to be tutored privately. Um, and if they can't afford that, then education isn't great. Uh, so people in Azerbaijan are really frustrated to see large amounts of money being spent on what are essentially vanity projects like the games, when for them sort of the basic uh, infrastructure and resources that they need to live their lives adequately are not in place, despite the huge oil wealth of the country. Phenomenal. And this is not the first kind of vanity project in Azerbaijan, is it? The, the um, Eurovision Song Contest took place there a couple of years ago, didn't it? Yeah, uh, that's correct. It's absolutely not the first vanity project. Uh, so in 2012, the Eurovision Song Contest took place in Azerbaijan. They built a stadium just for that that uh, that song contest called Crystal Hall. But in addition, there are a huge number of other vanity projects, such as, for example, um, the Flame Towers, which are three gigantic glass skyscrapers shaped like flames um, that light up at night uh, with sort of projections of flames on them and also the Azeri. These towers are completely empty, apart from uh, one very exclusive hotel that occupies a small part of the towers. And this is very of Azerbaijan. You have sort of very grand buildings uh, studding the city of Baku like jewels, which are for the most part empty and dusty and not open to the people of Azerbaijan, whereas basic infrastructure like roads are, are inadequately provided for. Um, it seems like a city that has been designed by, by architects, but uh, town planners haven't got a look in. Bizarre. And, uh, it is. It's a very uh, bizarre place. <laughs> what's the, the situation, because obviously the Euro Games and Eurovision both start with the term Euro, but my, my understanding is that um, Azerbaijan is, is kind of a Central Asian nation. 
Yeah, and that's also correct. And Azerbaijan is very keen to position itself as a sort of member of the European family. Um, and to a certain extent, through hosting events like this, has managed to do that. Uh, it's also notable that Azerbaijan is in the Council of Europe. Now, the Council of Europe is the body to be responsible for human rights and democracy within Europe um, and is supposed to uh, hold both Europe and its neighbours up to kind of strong standards on human rights and democracy. However, Azerbaijan has been able to use the Council of Europe to gain legitimacy uh, for its activities and the Council has not criticised Azerbaijan in the way it should have done over the number of political prisoners in the country, over um, crackdowns on freedom of expression um, and uh, violations during elections as well. Um, and the reason for this is that the Azeris have a very strong lobby within the Council of Europe. It's called caviar diplomacy, where they buy up a lot of the key MPs there. Remarkable. And speaking of, of Europe, you write a little bit in the book about um, the, the connection between uh, or the sort of the parallels with Greece here, where Greece held the Olympics and Azerbaijan is now bidding for the Olympics. And also the new pipeline that's being built is goes through, uh, or is, is supposed to go through Greece, but now Greece, the new Greek government, the Syriza government, is uh, sort of fighting back against that and demanding higher uh, revenue or higher rents for having the pipeline go through. It's, um, it's kind of a um, bit of a political football situation at the moment. Yes, indeed. And it's, we, we mentioned Greece uh, mainly because of the 2004 Olympics, which happened in Greece. Um, and now in Athens, all of those stadiums have basically been left to crumble. They're kind of overgrown, falling down. And it seems a striking parallel with uh, what's going on in Azerbaijan and perhaps how in 10 years' time the stadiums there may be crumbling as the regime falls. Um, the pipeline that you mentioned is the Euro-Caspian mega pipeline is planned to run 4,000 kilometers all the way from the Caspian Sea to Italy. Um, and as you say, will bisect Greece. Um, the Syriza government um, are now uh, basically uh, demanding a, a fairer deal on the pipeline, that, that they will get more money for it, for it traveling through their country and also to be able to buy back gas uh, at, a, at a more favorable rate. Um, but really, Greece is involved in a bit of a battle between Russia and Azerbaijan as they each try to court Greece for the right to pump their gas through, through its pipeline and, and through the country. Um, but in building a pipeline across so many states, I mean, this, this Euro-Caspian mega pipeline would move through seven countries. It's an incredibly difficult thing to do. Mm. Um, and obviously, if any part falls out along the way, that scuppers the whole pipeline. So it's really very interesting what's happening in Greece at the moment um, and quite what it means for, for which pipelines will eventually be built. Absolutely. And what would the effect of this, uh, this pipeline be in terms of climate change? So the pipeline would put over 2 billion tonnes of CO2 uh, into the atmosphere in the next 35 years. And that's a third of the emissions of Keystone XL. Um, it really would have a devastating impact on, the, uh, on climate change. Um, and it would also lock Europe into using fossil fuels 
for the next 35 years. Um, and gas is often claimed to be a transition fuel, but when it's tying us into using fossil fuels for that long, it really can't be said to say that it's transitioning us anywhere. It is just locking us into carbon when we need to be developing um, renewable energy. Absolutely. I mean, that's the kind of thing that gas wants to say. I recently read a book by a guy named Greg Palas called Vulture's Picnic, where he reports on a blowout that took place in Azerbaijan six months prior to BP's Gulf of Mexico spill. And he, he sort of points to similar causes in terms of some of the casing that was applied. Um, have you heard about this before? And, and why is it that news like this can take place, or events like this could potentially take place in Azerbaijan and nobody in the West would know about it? Yeah, I have heard about it. It's a really interesting story. And um, Greg Pallet's book, Vulture's Picnic, is a, is, a, is a great book. I definitely recommend it. Um, so, yeah, the blowout happened just a few months before um, uh, the Deepwater Horizon disaster. Um, and it seems like it was very similar in that uh, the cause was put down to a bad cement job as well. Uh, I mean, really, they were they were minutes away from having a disastrous explosion, and yet very little has been said about it. I think it came out um, in WikiLeaks what happened, uh, and the reason, of course, is that the Azeri government um, work hand in hand with BP to cover up information like this. In Azerbaijan, there is no scrutiny um, either for the social impacts or the environmental impacts of BP's operations there. And that, for BP, is what is so valuable about the regime. For them, it's stability. It's a very easy country to work in. After Deepwater Horizon, um, BP went and to uh, the CEO, Tony Hayward, went and spoke to three people. Um, and one of the people it went and met with was Ilham Aliyev. The relationship in, in Azerbaijan is absolutely key for them. And part of the reason that it's so secure is that there isn't this civil society scrutiny. Absolutely. And, and I guess it's all the more important with the, the crash in oil price that you talk about, but that BP maintain those relationships uh, because they're, they're already in a vulnerable position due to the criticism they took over Gulf of Mexico. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the Gulf of Mexico disaster took BP days away from bankruptcy. They're still recovering from that. They are still in a potentially vulnerable position. So at the moment, the relationship with the Aliyev regime is absolutely key. And that's why you see BP doing things like uh, talking to the UK government and telling the UK government to stay friendly with the Aliyev regime and not to criticize them and not to talk out about the human rights abuses there. So activists in Azerbaijan tell me time and time again, the UK are the most silent on human rights abuses in Azerbaijan. And the reason for that is, is the British government's relationship with BP and the fact that they feel the need to represent BP's interests in Azerbaijan. Corruption, straight corruption. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> the organisation that you work for, Platform, has recently held an action at the Tate Modern, the, the art gallery in London. Can you tell me about that action that you held? Yeah, sure. Um, so the action happened uh, so well. It wasn't actually Platform who had the action. It was um, a group called Liberate Tate, oh. who we work very closely with, um, in terms of targeting the Tate uh, Art Gallery in London and BP funding for the Tate Art Gallery. Um, and the, the action that happened 
this weekend involved taking over the main space in the Tate Modern, the Turbine Hall, um, and people used uh, charcoal to write extracts um, from books, books on climate change, books on art, um, books on dystopia and utopia, um, and to take over and create a kind of tide of words um, about a kind of different future, a sustainable future, um, a low carbon future. Um, and that was a kind of artistic intervention uh, around um, really trying to highlight the funding uh, of, of London's art galleries by, by oil companies like BP. Um, because a platform, we say that, that oil companies fund the arts to give them uh, a social license, uh, a social license to operate. Uh, and in fact, we've discovered that uh, oil companies pay very little in funding to get their logos plastered all over art galleries. Mm -hmm. uh, and really, we want to break the link between arts and the fossil fuel industry in the same way that you know tobacco uh, basically became unacceptable. Um, and tobacco companies were no longer allowed to sponsor uh, arts, uh, no longer allowed to advertise. Uh, we think that it's about time that fossil fuel companies uh, were basically removed from society because of the um, increasing threat from climate change. Absolutely. And how, how, did, um, how did the good people at the Tate Modern respond to that? The process went very well. Um, Celebrate Tate were able to stay there for 12 hours. They stayed there from midday on Saturday till midday on Sunday, including overnight. And actually, uh, quite a few staff from the Tate Modern came up and said that they supported the action um, and they totally agreed with Liberate Tate that they didn't want BP in their art there. Lots of the public as well came along and interacted with it um, and looked at what was going on. That's really awesome. Congratulations. So, Thank um, you. What will be the next the next moves for, for you, both um, in terms of uh, issues around Azerbaijan and uh, and for platform? So, Azerbaijan work, uh, something I'm keen to highlight next is um, the funding uh, by the Aliyev regime uh, of, also of, of arts. I mean, it's interesting that Leila Aliyev, who is the daughter of, of the president in Azerbaijan, uh, puts a lot of money into buying art and funding art exhibitions um, in Britain. Recently, we worked with a group of artists who pulled out of an exhibition that, that was funded by, by Leila Aliyev's Baku magazine, which is a, a very sort of glossy publication that, that she edits. Um, and really, we want to draw attention for how the Azerbaijani regime are basically trying to, to co-opt the art world in London um, to gain legitimacy again. Excellent. And, and if you could uh, give one thing to people that they could do to, to assist you in your campaigning, both now and in the future, what would that be? Yeah, sure. So immediate thing that people can do now, while the games are still continuing, they're going to be going on to the 26th of June, um, tweet at Baku2015 uh, to talk about the human rights abuses, to talk about the involvement of BP, and to talk about how dissenting voices are being silenced. Uh, we really want a conversation about what is going on uh, in Azerbaijan. Uh, over the longer term, um, visit our website, platformlondon.org. Uh, you can sign up to our newsletter uh, to find out what's going on. And in particular, this November, look out for our Action Sarawiwa campaign, which is marking the 20th anniversary of the murder of the Nigerian activist Ken Sarawiwa. 
Awesome. That's so cool. Thank you so much. No worries.